You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 101 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I am your host, Connor Johnnen, and I am joined by my co-host, David Howe. Uh, Carlton is celebrating passing his comp thing? Something. He's, he's out having a good time, so he will not be with us today. But we are lucky to have Dr. Angela Perry here, who's a visiting arch- assistant professor of anthropology at the University of of Nevada, Las Vegas. She's a senior archaeologist with PaleoWest and a research associate with the Paleogenomics and Bioarchaeology Research Network at the University of Oxford. She received her undergraduate degree in the Pacific Northwest at Portland State University and her PhD at Durham University in the UK. Dr. Perry studies the relationship between humans and their environments, animal domestication, and the genetic and morphological origins of dogs. Her work has been published in many exceptional academic journals as well as featured in the new york times national geographic and the bbc thank you so much for joining us today sorry that was a mouthful (laughs) thanks for having me i mean some of that is hard to get through i get it (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i think for the audience I'll just say i met you in rome i think was the first time i think i officially met you whoa whoa i totally forgot about that yes i think that is the first time we we met what a random place to meet. Really? Right. Yeah. And like, not a lot of people spoke like English there. I didn't know them. No. So I was like, okay, I want to talk to Angela about my career. That's very terrifying. Also, she's the only other person here that kind of speaks English. So I should probably just talk to her. And True. Yeah, so we had that <laughs> chat, but yeah. I mean, that was um, a good conference also. It was. That was that a really was good like, conference. <laughs> One of the coolest things I've ever seen, like passing the mic around, arguing about like dog art in different I languages. mean, a whole conference about dogs. Right? Yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty sweet. I also just left to go tour stuff too, half the time, but. <laughs> when in Rome, you know. Oh, good. <laughs> good yeah. on Yes. <laughs> I, about that. <laughs> I guess we can just get into it. So like, were you like a dinosaur kid, like a science kid or like, did you like worms or something? Yeah. So I'm an only child. And that meant that I had to entertain myself a lot. Luckily, from a pretty young age, my grandma had gotten me a National Geographic subscription. And so, you know, it was like my great joy every month. I would get my National Geographic. I would pull like it didn't matter what it was, whatever big poster came in, it would go immediately onto the wall. I mean, I read it cover to cover. And I was also deep, deep into Girl Scouts. I mean, I was like on the Girl Scout Council. I was like lifelong Girl Scout. I was very into camping, hiking, outdoors, bugs, just nature, all of it. Also, my grandparents are farmers in Kansas. And so I would spend a lot of the year just like on a farm, just roaming around, finding, you know, ponds of tadpoles and like random cats giving birth in the barn. I mean, just like, you know, random stuff. And so I was just a kid who was into like weird things. And like, I didn't have any older brother or sister to tell me like, what are you doing? Like, so I just was free, you know, just going for it. And yeah, very into National Geographic, very into nature, outdoors, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you obviously, uh, you guys, David and you know each other because you're both interested in dogs. Did you have a dog growing up? Is that where you kind of get this love for dogs, I guess? 
Yeah, you know, I, when I was born, my parents had a dog already. So I've never known a life without a dog. Always had dogs. Always been like a dog person. Like I said, being an only child, like my dog was kind of like, you know, my sibling. And so, yeah, I, I was always very into dogs. And yeah, then I guess I just found a way to make dogs a career. I got really lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, that's awesome. I think a lot, I would say we should probably do data on this, but like 75% of our guests were like, had National Geographic books or magazines and just like read them all the time yeah, um, or watched the same shows and stuff. But yeah, that's awesome. Childhood sounds like. Yeah. I think I've always had a dog too and a cat. I don't even know. I mean, I can't understand a life without growing up without pets, especially a dog. It's just like, yeah, how what happens? Like how, where does, where, how do you entertain an only child first of all without a pet? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And like, I usually just talk to my dog instead of talking to myself. So like, I don't know what that would be like with just being an only child and no dog. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you went to, I guess, Portland state. You're, you were living up there too, right? Yeah. So I had a, I have a very weird non-traditional academic path that is yeah, it bifurcates a lot. It splits, it stops, it goes. Like all people usually, you know, I, I grew up in Las Vegas, which most people are like, oh, that's cool. That's that's great. Like, didn't you <laughs> want to stay there? But like everyone, right? You never want to stay in the place that you're from and that you grew up. You like just want to get out and go do something. So as soon as I graduated from high school, I immediately went to Oregon State. And like everyone who read National Geographic growing up, right, I was... I, I was convinced I was going to be a marine biologist because that's what mm. you do, right? Of course, we're all going to be marine biologists and it's going to work at, you know, SeaWorld and whales and dolphins. It's just like I was going to live the life. So I went to Oregon State. I was enrolled like to, as a biology undergrad and I was like, here we go. I got, you know, a couple of years into my undergrad there and I just was like, maybe this isn't for me. Like, I'm not really loving it. I don't love school. Like my biology classes are okay. And I started being like, what What am I going to do with an undergrad biology degree? What do you do with an undergrad biology? And I started spiraling. And then I was like, you know what? I just stopped. I stopped going to school. I moved to to Portland and I was a bartender and working at, you know, clothing stores and just for years, just that's that's what I was doing. Thought about going back to school. And then I was just like, no, I don't know what I would want to do. So I'll just do this. I'll just keep being a bartender working in Portland. <laughs> and then, yeah, one day I decided, okay, I'm ready. I, I'm a strong believer in, I love the European system of like taking a year off and just kind of like traveling and like figuring out life. I wasn't the type of person who needed to go to university at like 18. I had no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> I was super confused. I was taking all kinds of classes all over the place. So I ended up going back to school at Portland State much later. I mean, I think I I restarted when I was 27 or 28, my undergrad at Portland State. So I took a good chunk of time off and went back. What kind of inspired you to to finally get back into academia? Was it? Yeah, I think... I think I had had enough of being a server and a bartender in Portland, right? I I liked school. I was good at school. I, I got straight A's. But it was hard for me to work towards a degree when I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I, like a lot of people, kept changing majors and like taking a couple of these classes, realizing I didn't like it, taking a couple of these classes, realizing I didn't like that. And I was just like, 
taking endless classes, paying endless money for an undergrad degree when I just didn't know what I wanted to do. So when I was living in Portland, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go back to the school of Portland State. I'm going to start taking some, like, I'm going to go back to my roots of National Geographic, right? And I'm going to take some, like, anthropology classes. I didn't really know what anthropology was or, you know, what I would do. And I started out as a cultural anthropologist. I was convinced I was going to be a cultural anthropologist. I was doing my kind of undergrad dissertation on Romani gypsy population in Portland. And I was working at a Romani gypsy school and living with a a family and doing kind of research with them. And then one day I took... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was great. It was really interesting. But then one day I took intro to archaeology with uh, with Ken Ames, the kind of like go-to Pacific Northwest hunter-gatherer guy. And I just was, I never looked back. It was never the same after that. I just knew I was going to be an archaeologist. That, uh, yeah, it's prehistoric archaeology is like what sucks people in. I don't know why, but I think everybody who intends to go into school to do like Mayan or like Roman stuff then looks at stone tools and you hear about like ecology and you're like, oh. That's really cool. And you just stick with it. It's so good. It's just so, it was so interesting. And I think when you have professors who are very good at what they do and are genuinely interested and genuinely like interested in passing that information along to their students, it's just, it's so addictive. And you just, when you find professors that you like, you just take all of their classes and you're just like soak in their knowledge and that's how I was with Ken and Virginia Butler, um, the zooarchaeologist at Portland State as well. I took all of her classes and she's the one who like made me love zooarchaeology and wanting to be a zooarchaeologist. So yeah, then I decided from then on I was an archaeologist and I took all archaeology classes and then I got my degree. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Uh, did you do any sort of field work? or lab work as part of your degree there? Yeah, so I I did field school. I actually did a historic field school at Fort Vancouver there. So it's a historic kind of Hudson Bay company fort. So that was interesting. I definitely knew I wasn't into historics after that. (laughs) It was interesting. And then I was working in CRM. I was a field tech working in CRM and then working in um, the Zoric lab there at Fort Vancouver, looking at like, various animal burials and things like that there. So yeah, I did a little bit of lab work, a little bit of field work, stuff like that. But I I knew pretty early on that I wanted to do work with dogs and dog domestication and hunting dogs specifically, which is kind of how I launched into what I did for my PhD. Cool. Before we launch into that, though, I have to ask, is being a bartender hard or is it really fun or is it both? (laughs) Oh, man, I would say that It depends on where you work and it depends on the day, you know, I've been a bartender in Portland and I've been a bartender in Las Vegas and they're just two different worlds, right? (laughs) I I feel for anyone who works in a tourist location who has to deal with tourists every day. It's really hard (laughs) to do, but for you, it's another day at work for them. It's like the greatest day of their life, right? They're out in Vegas at a club. And it's just like they're at a bachelor party or it's their birthday. And so for them, it's just like the most exciting day ever. And you're like, it's a Thursday for me. <laughs> so, you know, and yeah. like you're just like how many cosmopolitans. I was a bartender in the days of cosmopolitans and sex in the city. And it's like, how many cosmopolitans can I make today? Or, <laughs> you know, how many like Red Bull vodkas can I serve to dudes on a bachelor party? So, you know, right. Has its ups and downs. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I guess like, I didn't really think about that. If they, 
they're they're having like the time of their lives and you have to like kind of like match that energy level but if you have like you know a doctor's appointment or you got no sleep that day you're just like oh my god yeah yeah and i worked lots of late nights i worked my sh- when i was working on the strip in vegas my shift started at 10 p.m and i was i got out at 8 a.m so Whoa. that's a weird life <laughs> Yeah. that's a weird life <laughs> anthropological yeah. for sure yeah i feel like nothing good in vegas happens after like two o'clock oh no the weird <laughs> the weird things that you see the weird stories that you have after that yeah yeah so like i said like not a straight i didn't like graduate from high school get my four-year degree and then go into my phd not it was a meandering path you know yeah so on that path you went to the uk at durham university yeah how did that come about and like why Europe? How did that come about? So like I said, probably unlike a lot of people who start their PhD, I was laser focused on what I wanted to do. Like in those year, those two years that I finished my undergrad at Portland State, I became like the model student. I was so focused, so dedicated. Like once I knew what I wanted to do, I was like, okay, I'm zeroing in. I'm getting straight A's. I'm like, doing this thing. And it became very clear very early on, like I wanted to go into grad school. Now I'm a first generation college graduate. No one in my family has a college degree. There's no background in my, in my life to like help me through the obstacle course that is grad school and how that happens and where you go and how you do application. The whole process was like a mystery to me. And so I started with like, who would I want to do work with? Who would I want to find does work that is similar to what I'm interested in things like that. And at the time I was so clear about what I wanted to do for a PhD that I was looking specifically for zooarchaeologists who had like a kind of worldwide approach, who had experience in various locations where I was interested in working. And that was very hard to find in the U.S. I had talked to Pam Crabtree at NYU, but she was very specific in kind of where she worked. And, and really, you know, everyone pointed me to the same person. And this was someone in the UK, my, who became my PhD supervisor, Peter Raleigh Conway. Yeah. So then, you know, having never been to the UK ever in my life, I got on a plane to England, arrived in January in the middle of like the worst snowstorm they'd had in like a decade. And it was immediately like, what have I done? (laughs) What have I done? Where am I living? I'm in a small village in England in a snowstorm. I'm from Las Vegas. This is a terrible idea. (laughs) Well, yeah. And then you go to like charge your phone after a long day and it's a different plug and you're like, oh, it's um, all, it's all different. (laughs) Yeah. That's wild. Cause like I like am from the East coast obviously, but then just went to Laramie, Wyoming for grad school. And that was just like the culture shock of just leaving, I think Knoxville at the time to then there was just wild to me, but yeah, going to a whole other country and having to do all that and then do grad school. Must be kind of challenging. Yeah. And a different system, you know, so I was over in Europe for 12 years before I just recently moved back to the U S and it's just a completely different academic system. So for example, undergrads in the UK, they do a three year undergrad that's laser focused on their major. Right. And so you apply and you apply into your undergrad in the UK for a very specific program. So students apply to the Department of Archaeology, get accepted to the Department of Archaeology, and there's no changing your major. There's no like messing around and saying, I don't want to do this anymore. 
it's like you're stuck. That's it. It's very hard to change that path once you're on it. And you only take archaeology classes for three years. So it's a very focused system. And in some ways, the PhD is very, very similar in that. At the time, I had colleagues who were doing, you know, six, seven, eight year, nine year PhD programs. That was the kind of norm, like not that long ago. It wasn't abnormal for people to do eight year PhDs. And in the UK, it was a three or four year PhD program. So again, it was like this kind of laser focus on getting to your writing your dissertation immediately. Yeah. On a a quicker track, whether that's a good or a bad thing, I'm not, I'm still not quite sure, but it feels like in the U S that the, that length of your PhD is kind of gone down significantly in the last few years. Yeah. And that's, I I think that's probably for everyone's, hopefully for everyone's good. And on that note, I think we are going to end this segment right here. This is episode 101. We're talking with Dr. Angela Perry. So enjoy these ads. Welcome back to episode 101 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We're talking with Dr. Angela Perry. And we wanted to start this segment off by just kind of chatting about your dissertation work. So could you give us maybe the the elevator speech of what you ended up studying as part of your dissertation? Yes, I studied, man, I always tell my students, have your elevator speech ready. And here's me failing miserably. (laughs) What I did was I looked at a comparison of three areas across um, the world, Japan, Northern Europe, and the Mid-South of the U.S. And I looked at whether People used dogs as hunting adaptations to climate change related to the transition, Pleistocene-Holocene transition. So essentially, I noticed that there are lots of dog burials that all looked exactly the same. And the burials looked very kind of hunting dog-like. They were buried with hunting stuff and they're with people who were in very similar environments, kind of these deciduous broadleaf forests that kind of arose with the Holocene transition and people who are hunting largely white-tailed deer and boar in these forests and had transitioned very rapidly through that climatic change from either polar tundra or boreal forests into these kind of rapidly expanding warm forests with these completely different prey species. And essentially it looked like that they were using dogs as a way to adapt to new environments and new prey. And that once these hunting dogs died, that they were burying them in these very elaborate ways. And that the same thing was happening kind of across the board in these three areas looked very, very similar. And in all areas, it stopped once agriculture came in. So it looked very similar and very closely associated with hunter gatherers. That's freaking cool. Um, <laughs> did, did um have I published that paper yet? No. <laughs> I don't think this is what happens when you when you do a PhD. Like you're so tired of the topic that you just it's a decade later and you just can't bring yourself to publish that PhD. Yeah. Last I told Bob about my um dissert or my thesis, I told him it was in review, but I had never submitted it. But he just kept asking yeah. me. Yeah. We'll get it's there. In, it's, it's internal review. That's what it is. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's <Did> coming. That, <laughs> like, so the research you did there, it was like some ethnographic stuff in Japan, or was it more like, like looking at data and then analyzing it? Yeah. So I spent a large portion of time in Japan during that. I mean, a very good excuse to just go spend a bunch of time in Japan. And one of the things I wanted to do while I was there is like, you know, people who hunt boar tell me like, there's nothing like hunting boar. You'll 
Like it's a very unique experience and you have to do it. You have to understand how people are using dogs in the field. And I've done it with hunters in the Mid-South. Um, so in Alabama and various places in the Mid-South. And I've done it with hunters in Sweden and other places, mostly deer though. And so when I went to Japan, I went out with some hunters. Hunting in Japan is very difficult now. It's a very expensive sport because gun licenses and all of that is like a, a long process. So it's not, it's definitely not like, hunting the way a Jamon hunter-gatherer would hunt, right? But we definitely went out and went boar hunting and it was like a freight train that you can't see coming at you through a dense forest. It was intense and you immediately see why people use dogs. You can't find the boar alone in a forest without them. Um, the dogs like sniff them out immediately. And as soon as they get their trail, they go running after them and essentially corral them and then just bark and bark and bark and bark and bark, and bark until you find them. And then you kill the boar. I mean, when you go hunting with, with dogs, you realize why people use dogs to hunt. <laughs> because hunting without dogs is a lot harder in those types of environments. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I did work with people in Japan. And when I was in the Mid-South, I mean, I just love talking to hunters there. Because, you know, when I talk to people who don't use dogs, and dogs are largely banned now from, from hunting all across the U.S. and most states. What they'll say to you is like, it's not really a sport if you use a dog. It's too easy. But like, that's the point, right? For hunter-gatherers, that's the point yeah. is that you, it's not a sport for hunter-gatherer. It's not something that you want to be challenging. It's something that you want to be efficient and as and easy and quick as possible. So yeah, dogs work. That's awesome. Well, that's, <laughs> I, to, to, uh, and I think we, we talk about this and the episode we recorded yesterday, which is actually going to release after this, but like the experiential knowledge you get from actually going out and doing stuff archaeology wise is really, you might not be able to quantify it or qualitatively. I mean, you could write about it or whatnot, but you, it's hard to kind of put that into words or uh, publish on it or something like that. But it, it's super important to actually get into those environments and try to replicate it as, as much as possible, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I, aside from this kind of general idea of dog hunting, one of the things I found really surprising was that, you know, uh, we think of prey selection, right? Human prey selection and the animals that we go after. But when you use a dog, you don't really have any control. There's no control in prey selection. Like the dog picks what it's going to go after. And then that's what you go and kill. And so when I think through, you know, like, funnel records of places where people are using dogs. And I think like, here's our prey choice selection. Oh, here they went after these animals or they went after this age or this group. Then I'm just thinking like, when you hunt with dogs, that's not the way it works. The dogs <laughs> choose what you go after. You're not choosing, you're not like, no, no, not that one. So yeah, I mean, you have to be there to really understand these types of like very, what seem like kind of minute decisions that happen when you're hunting that actually uh, turn into these really important kind of things when you go through the archaeological record. Huh. So I guess two questions. One, in like how much like magnitude does hunting with a dog like optimize your like, you know, return rate for these like cultures? Yeah. So my colleague, Jeremy Coster, he works in Nicaragua. He does some really amazing work now with um, Mosquito and Nyanga people in Nicaragua. <laughs> <laughs> yep. She's excited about that. With Mosquito and Nyanga people in Nicaragua who use hunting dogs. They're horticulturalists, but most of their game comes from wild hunting. And 
he does a lot of work looking at kind of optimal foraging theory and relating it to looking at these dogs. It has a lot to do with the environment that you're in, the prey species that you're in, and how much work you need to put into it's a cost benefit analysis, right? How much work you need to put into getting good dogs. So in places where he works, right, people still use dogs and they're really important for hunting specific prey species. Some of them, they're horrible at hunting, right? So a very limited prey spectrum that they're good at. But he's in an environment where dogs go very quickly. He'll tell you every time he comes back to his site, most of the dogs he saw last time are gone because of disease, because of jaguars and snakes. And it's not a very friendly environment for dogs. Whereas, you know, other locations like these deciduous forest dogs, you know, we have dogs and burials that are clearly like 10, 12 years old that are hunting dogs. So you have dogs that are seemingly living much longer lives than they are in places like the neotropics. Yeah, it depends on how much work you have to put into it. If you read the ethnographic literature, most places where people use dogs and use them kind of religiously, they will say, like, we couldn't do what we do without the dogs. Like, the dogs are our primary technology. Um, And they are kind of what everything in our economy centers around. Like, we want, we really want this nice juicy pig species, but we don't even attempt to hunt that without dogs because the dogs go out and find it for us. They hold it down so we can kill it. Without dogs, it's really difficult. Um, And you hear that over and over for lots and lots of different species. And yeah, it varies by environment, but that's kind of, when people use dogs, they really maximize what they're getting out of the environment from them. But Jeremy will tell you as well, like, you hope that your dog doesn't go after some creature that, like, it can never catch. And then you just wasted, like, three hours. And you're just like, God damn it. This sucks. <laughs> yeah. Because so, they just chase it. Yeah. Right. So it's like dogs are ideal in a location where basically every prey species is a prey species that is good at being hunted with dogs. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Please take me in your suitcase next time you do something like that. Yeah. Um, you want to go to Nicaragua? <laughs> Uh, if there's jaguars, it'll be kind of fun. So <laughs> I guess the other question was like, you went to Japan to do some of this and you went to like the Southeastern United States and like, was the, not to joke about it, like the cultural experience, like kind of equal in the sense of like how like differing it was, or was it like really fun <laughs> doing both? <laughs> hunters are hunters all around the world. And they're, I have to, my experience so far has been that they are very similar kind of worldwide First of all, everyone is like, what is this like girl doing following us around <laughs> watching us hunt with dogs? Why is she asking us weird questions? Like, why is she asking us things that are seemingly obvious? So, yeah, they're always lots of fun. They're always really happy to show you what they're doing and why they're doing it. They're always largely maligned groups of people who are getting a lot of crap about a hunting and b hunting with dogs and so that's been an interesting world for me to slightly step into when you're a person who studies hunting dogs you're a little bit like of a target for certain groups of people who are like hunting dogs are something so yeah it's an interesting world to like be part of and the u.s is really dwindling there's so few states where you can hunt with dogs now and not that I necessarily like agree with hunting with dogs here, but it is kind of a traditional thing to do for a lot of the the people that I was working with. So yeah, it's, it's interesting to see 
moving from the kind of prehistoric side of it to people who are still hunting with dogs. So this might be a dumb question. So, but, but hear me out. (laughs) How do you, so you have the, your ethnographic record, your kind of, your field work, working with these, these groups, how do you see and study dogs in the past and connect these modern kind of ethnographic accounts to kind of prehistory? Yeah, it's difficult. Let me tell you that identifying hunting dogs in the archaeological record is not like, it's not easy. Now, sometimes I have work. So I've done a paper recently, maybe in the last two years on rock art. So hunting dogs in rock art in Saudi Arabia, which was awesome because it was a panel of people hunting with dogs and bows and arrows and leashes. So we were pretty clear that they were using dogs for hunting there, right? So this is our dream. We would love to just have a bunch of rock art. In Japan, we have some kind of artistic depictions as well of people hunting boar with hunting dogs. So, okay, there it's pretty clear, right? But how you identify a hunting dog is largely through context, through pathology on dogs, through the things that they're buried with and the way in which they're buried. Like I said, with my PhD, we saw dog burials begin with this kind of transition And we saw them end with the arrival of agriculture, which was at different times in all three of these areas. And then you suddenly see dogs being treated like pariahs or eaten or something else. So you no longer see these kind of elaborate burials. And these burials are mirroring the burials of what you would think of as male hunter burials as well. So you see like a lot of evidence of dogs being treated in a very specific way. So there's lots of like other weird little things that you may find at sites, such as um, intentional shelters or things being created for dogs. There's lots of really great ethnographic literature about how people treat their hunting dogs and creating sleeping platforms for them or building them special snow shelters if it's in Arctic environments or sunshades if it's in quite warm environments or things like that. So these are some of the, the more detailed things that are harder to get at, but I think are really interesting. Yeah, that is the kind of stuff that like kind of keeps me up at night. Like, how did they do it? Like what? Like, I don't know. There's just so many answers or questions you could ask about it. Yeah. And like Todd had asked me at one point, like, what's the number one thing you want to find? And I was like, okay, like just a mammoth and like a human and a dog, preferably like the mammoth has to gourd both of them. So like, you know, they were hunting. Yes. Um, And it's just not going to be found, but we would know a lot if we did. I know this is... Yeah, this rock art stuff was like, you know, I'd never even considered it. And then a colleague of mine came to me and said, we found something weird in Saudi Arabia. Do you want to take a look? And I was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> do, you know, do you know what you found here? This is insane. This is amazing. It's literally groups of dogs on leashes dating to 9,000 years ago with bows and arrows chasing down prey. What? You have... This is like the gold mine. She was like, oh, is it good? I was like, <laughs> it's great. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. It's like a freaking time machine. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. It was Throws so out a stone for dogs. <laughs> exactly. And like early evidence of leashes and like what the dogs looked like and their like kind of phenotypic characteristics and the way that they're using them in different environments. It was just like, yeah. I mean, that's the dream. Like it'll never come along again, but. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Those dogs had like curled like tails. I remember seeing that in the, uh, like yeah. the panel, which is like not yeah. wolfy. 
It was really interesting because they look so similar to something that is now the kind of Israeli national dog, the Canaan dog, which interestingly looks like all other kind of primitive dogs that we think of, right? It's very dingo looking or this mm. mid-sized yellowish dog that is what a pariah dog often is considered like pricked ears, curled tail, kind of a barreled chest, medium sized tan. And the depictions of dogs on these panels all looked exactly the same. They all looked very uniform. They even had, so canine dogs often have a white chest and have a little white tick on their shoulder. And the dogs in these panels all had like white, some kind of, some kind of depiction of a chest, like a chest piece of a different color or a different shade or something. I mean, it's rock art, so you can't see, but it had, has a chest, some kind of depiction on the chest. And a lot of them have like something depicted on their shoulder that looks very similar to this like tick, this white kind of line that we see on the cane dog. I mean, it was just crazy. So like I said, a once in a lifetime, like never again will you see that. Yeah, that's crazy. Cause I was just painting that the other day, like trying to like make a replica of it. And I was wondering what that little line was. I thought it was like separating their legs, but if that's like supposed to be coloring, that's really cool. Didn't even think of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's depicting like a kind of a different color on the chest and a line or the tick. We call it the tick. It's a genetic mutation on their side. Huh. Yeah. Look up a canine dog. You'll see all of them have this white little mark right there. I'm going to do that uh, right now because <laughs> we're going to end this session. And in the next one, we'll talk more about your research. Welcome back to episode 101 of the Life and Nerds podcast. I can never remember. Uh, we're here with Dr. Angela Perry. And in the interim, we were nerding out about rock art still. And she mentioned that she worked at the the Mox Planck, is how apparently it's supposed to be said. But like Costco's, there are multiple. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. I'll just be American and say Max Planck. <laughs> and yeah, Max Planck is really an interesting kind of system within Germany. So there are, I think, something like 71 Max Planck Institutes all around Germany. Oh. And every Max Planck Institute focuses on a different kind of theme. And then within that theme, there are various departments. So our Max Planck is the, was the Max Planck for evolutionary anthropology. And then within that, when I started, we had a kind of linguistics department and we had a genetics department and then we had a psychology department and the human evolution department, which is what I was in. And then eventually the linguistic department closed and we got an HBE department that replaced it. So we're all generally tied together with some kind of theme and then do our kind of separate things within our department. And there was another Max Planck that was what are they called in Jena, not too far from us, the science of human history or something like that. That's very closely related. They do genetics and archaeology as well. So they opened not that long ago. Um, and we have a kind of close relationship between the two departments or the two kind of Max Planck Institutes. Cool. Is it, are those really well-funded? I feel like I always hear like, yeah. that's like the gold standard. That's where you want to go if you want to do some research, especially any genetics research has it seems yeah. like it all comes out of that. So like I said, okay, there's many, right? And they have various themes, biology, computational genetics, engineering, like they're just kind of everything. And they are incredibly well-funded, partially private funding and then partially like German taxpayer money goes towards a Max Planck Institute. So, and I, I for my experience, um, German people are really proud of the work that's done at the Max Planck Institutes and how kind of prestigious they are. 
Max Planck is such a unique opportunity to do research on your own terms, to have tons of funding and to have essentially a free reign of where your research goes. So that has its pros and cons, right? So you have to be incredibly self-disciplined and incredibly like in control of your own research and driving your own boat because you have so much independence at a Max Planck Institute that that can sink you if you don't kind of utilize that to your maximum advantage. So, yeah, but I mean, what an incredibly unique experience that, you know, I will never experience again, the freedom and financial like support that I got being in a Max Planck Institute for four years. Yeah. Were you like the person to bring dogs as a like research topic to there or was like Gregor there first or like, how did that come about? So the way that I got involved with, with, Gregor and genetics in general. So I, when I was a PhD student at Durham, Gregor was at Durham. He was there as part of a RCUK fellowship, so a five-year fellowship at Durham. I didn't know Dur- I didn't know Gregor at all. I had no work with him or interaction with him at all. And one day I was walking down the hallway, and he was like, "Hey, are you the girl that does dogs?" Um, at that time, Gregor was deep into pigs and pig domestication and all things pigs. And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I work on dogs." And he was like. I'm interested in starting to work on dogs. And so we had a long conversation about it, which eventually became a PNAS paper in 2012 about dogs and combination of archaeology and genetics to look at dogs and then kind of kicked off our long relationship that we have now pairing archaeology and genetics, which I think has been incredibly successful. I think in my experience, like a lot of archaeologists like are weird about genetics and think that geneticists don't know a lot about archaeology or care, which is true in some cases. And so I think that Gregor and I have been able to strike a really nice balance in putting both the archaeology and the genetics at the forefront and not letting one lead. Because when that's the case, right, it's always the genetics that become the like star of the show and the archaeology gets pushed to like a supplemental where it's like, also, we excavated this site period. And, you know, so the the archaeology never gets to be like the star of the show. In our kind of collaboration, I was very insistent that the archaeology needs to be just as important as the genetics. And he has really embraced that. And he has an archaeology background as well. So yeah, we've, we've managed to really do a lot of great collaboration in that way. And, you know, a lot of my colleagues are like, how did you manage to be first author on like a largely genetics based paper? That's so weird. And it's because I I don't let the genetics take like center stage, right? The archeology span is just as important. And my colleagues understand that and believe that as well. Yeah. And so Gregor's moved on to Oxford now. He's been in Oxford for a while now. And so then I'm associated with that really long name that is difficult to pronounce at Oxford. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. Uh, what aspects of genetics are you studying as, as part of this? So when I first met Gregor, I wasn't really into domestication necessarily. I was very much into just how dogs were used as tools, technology. And Gregor was like, oh, I'm really interested in domestication. And I was like, okay, like, yeah, that sounds kind of interesting. I'll, I'll give it a go and like get in there with you. And so since then, our goal has been the goal of everyone who studies dogs, which is like how, when, where, why. The answers, which we do not have the answer to any of those things. But yeah, I mean, that's been our goal, right? 
our real like desire would be track down the stock population, which gave rise to, to dogs, right? And I think with our recent paper in PNAS, we made a pretty good attempt at doing that. It's saying where and when we think dogs were, were likely domesticated. I'm convinced that dogs are domesticated in, in Siberia or Beringia and are very closely associated with the peopling of the Americas and ancestral Native American populations, uh, most likely domesticated wolves, and then came with them into the Americas. So I'm convinced that that's, that's, the, that's the story. I find it hard to understand genetically, timing-wise, morphologically, how we would get to any other story with domestication of dogs, largely because, I mean, bear with me a minute, but we, we know we have dogs going into the Americas very early, and we know that we have populations who are essentially isolated in Beringia for some period of time during the standstill. And we know that we have none or very little gene flow from from human populations into Beringia at this time. After a certain time, it it seems to be seemingly kind of cut off after about 24,000 years ago. So how do you get dogs into the Americas by potentially 15,000 years ago or earlier? Like who is giving people in Beringia who are eventually peopling the Americas dogs? And, and when? Is it pre-24,000? We don't have any evidence of dogs being domesticated before that time period. Everything we have prior to that time period, all evidence points to those being wolves. So I'm trying to figure out who got dogs to these people when they're peopling the Americas, early dogs into the Americas. And I can't find an answer outside of them being domesticated in, in Siberia or Beringia. So that's kind of where we're going with the genetics is trying to sort this question of when and where and how and why. That is one of the coolest topics ever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's really cool stuff. From that population there then, how quickly, I guess I'll preface this, like when the paper came out, you mentioned like dogs are used as trade items and I never thought about that because you're like trading Mm. food and stone. You're like, my dog actually is really fast. Let's switch, you know. How quick did they like populate Europe and Africa and I guess South Asia? So one of our issues in dog domestication has always been, why can we, so anyone who knows the history of dog domestication has seen like, we debate back and forth about dogs were domesticated in East Asia, dogs were domesticated in Europe. No, they're domesticated in Central Asia. No, they're domesticated here. And we can't actually, We yeah, we can't actually figure out why can't we sort that out? That seems weird that we can't pinpoint literally anywhere in Eurasia that we think dogs are from. And I think it's because dogs were domesticated in Siberia and then went both ways. I think they went into the Americas and went back into the rest of Eurasia. And that what happened is along the way, they picked up DNA from local wolf populations, from European wolf populations, from East Asian wolf populations, from Central Asian wolf populations. And that makes us think that we have either dual domestication in various places or no, they're domesticated here. No, they're domesticated here. Well, how can you be right? And I be right. Like that doesn't make sense. And I think it's, we got this one source population and it's funneling very quickly back into the rest of Eurasia. And that's, what's making us think that dogs were domesticated in all of these places. So I don't remember what your actual question was, but that's the, um, Neither do that's I. where I went um, with that. <laughs> Oh, it was like, yeah, how'd they get to the rest of the world faster? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's how. I think that 
Right. Dogs in trade. Dogs, I very much think of dogs as members of our group, but also technology. I'm very much like the dogs are technology person, right? And I think that dogs can both be members of our group and technology. People move around, right? And so dogs move around too. And I, I, all ethnographic evidence suggests that good hunting dogs or good sledding dogs or any dog that's good at things is passed on. It's puppies are passed on that it becomes a important trade item. And I think that dogs are the same or, you know, two groups come together and their dogs mate and then that female dog runs off with that group and then they give birth to a dog that has completely weird genetics because it's half something else. Right. And I think that dogs are happy to breed with all sorts of things, including coyotes and wolves and all various types of things. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if dogs are just mating with each other every time they come into contact and that those puppies are being traded back and forth and right and left. That's really, really interesting. I think it's, I don't know, David gets really excited talking about <laughs> dogs and, and Clovis. And I think that's like a little bit. Yeah. That's, I think that's what you would study if you went back and got a PhD, right? Yeah. Where are the Clovis dogs? Yeah. That would be, if I found are that, they? I would just pass out and be done. <laughs> I'd be like, all right, this is it. <laughs> Where are and, they? Yeah, I want to go out to LaPrelle this year. I told Todd and Maddie, like if they find a dog, I look at many things. <laughs> I was like, I will be there that day. Yeah. So, yeah. That would be amazing. Yeah. It, yeah. I don't know if you heard more about that site right now, but there's like a whole house there and stuff. And like, are they? No, I saw and, that they were back out there, but I didn't know what the, what they were what the most recent finds were channel flakes and like their, their yeah, process and everything. Yeah. Refitting channel flakes. So like broken different parts of the site. So they're really actually finding a ton of artifacts now because before it was like you're digging through like calcium carbonate and just everything sucks and you're not finding anything. Yeah, yeah. But now they've actually found like a, like a lot, they're getting a lot of tools. They're getting a lot of bone, you know, it's, it's kind of wild. It's like the exact opposite of what they've had for every field season before that. Sounds awesome. Let's get the dog. And then yeah. we'll just like seal it up. That'll just be the just, bow. It's in that one quad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and some undergrad just like hits it with a trowel. Yeah. So for the audience, I guess we get a lot of people that do CRM, a lot of people that mm-hmm. are in grad school and aspiring undergrads. What is it like being on such big papers? And like, how do you even go about that? Or just papers in general as a PhD student? <laughs> Yeah. How do you go about being on papers as PhD students? I think that that's down to having good supervisors who help you get on papers, help you write your own papers, include you in their research and make you an important part of the publication process. I think that genuinely for the job market these days, like not having publications is not helpful. (laughs) you're you're not going to go very far in the job market without publications. And I think that at a lot of places now, people, it used to be that people come out of their PhDs with no papers or maybe like one paper. Right. And I don't think that that's the norm anymore. I think that supervisors are realizing that to be competitive on the job market now that you need to have papers. So yeah, I think that being an active integrative part of your own research of the people in your department's research of your supervisor's research is really the way to go. But you also have to be your own advocate, right? A lot of students may wait around for like someone to give them the opportunity to be on a paper or to write their own papers. But 
yeah, you have to kind of take it into your own hands sometimes as well. If you have an idea, you have the time and the ability to write it and you have the support of your supervisor, then yeah, I say go for it. Cool. Why are there so many names in on these genetics papers. Why are there so many names on the genetics papers? There's so many names on our genetics papers because we are very much, when I say we, I mean Gregor and I and Laurent and our kind of primary collaborators. We feel like if someone put effort into the work of this paper, whether it was, you know, in the lab or in the field, or in the writing of the paper, or in the data analysis, anyone who touched the data and made a difference, for me, I'm like a more is more person. And so if people want to be on a paper that they feel they genuinely contributed to, even if it was only in a minor way, I'm happy to, to add them to the paper. Now, sometimes, yeah, that leads to 50, 60, 70 authors on a paper. But you also have, you know, these genetic labs have, you know, a person who's in charge and then multiple PhD students and multiple postdocs and, you know, lab people who all were important to the process of getting us to these results. So the direwolf paper that I just published, we had, I don't know, 53 people on or something like that. But a lot of those are postdocs or PhD students or lab people who were integral in, in doing the lab work or the analysis. And it's hard. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of time and effort. And I want those people to be genuinely like rewarded for their contribution. So I'm like, get on over here on this paper. And I love it. I mean, I love the idea of a PhD student having like a science or nature paper. That's, you know, good for them. They contributed. So yeah, the more the merrier. On that note, uh, we're going to do a fourth segment, which is the more the merrier. So we'll be right back. I That wasn't great. Uh, <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to episode 101 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We are here with Dr. Angela Perry. And we wanted to start off this segment by asking you about what you are doing currently archaeologically. So, well, I'll just start this off by saying like I'm a huge advocate for mental health and mental health in academia, which yes. is a large problem we have, right? We are led to believe that academia is a monk-like existence to which we shall devote all our time and energy and mental well-being to. And I lived that life for a super long time and it only led to like <laughs> a lot of like let down and a lot of stress and, you know, so I was right before the pandemic hit, I had a baby and I was on maternity leave and then the pandemic hit and yeah, I was living very, very far away from my family and my friends and most of the people I knew who I wanted to be around when I had a, a baby and I was locked in. In the UK, we were real, we were really locked in. <laughs> Um, so we weren't allowed to go anywhere. I wasn't allowed to have like meetings with other people who had babies or any of that stuff. And on top of being on maternity leave in academia during a pandemic, like it just really took a massive toll on my mental health. And I just found myself like a lot of people I know, like just being like, I want my mommy, you know, like I want my family. I want people I know. I want a place I'm familiar with. And so I decided I wanted to go home. I wanted, I was ready to like leave Europe. Um, I'd been there for 12 years and it was time, it was time to go home. And at that time I got the opportunity to work for the company that I work for now, Paleo West in Las Vegas, where I'm from. And I just thought it was like a great 
it was a leap because I'd been in academia since, you know, my PhD. Um, and I didn't know if I wanted to go into CRM or what that meant or how that would change my research trajectory or my academic trajectory. Did that mean I wasn't academic anymore? All these things. So I came back and I started working for Paleo West um, CRM. And I'm now the head of the Nevada office here. And basically I run all of our cultural resource work here. So, you know, Nevada is largely BLM. So I do a lot of work with BLM, a lot of work with mining, a lot of work with park service and national forest service and things like that. And I get to see a different side of archaeology than I was doing in academia. And, you know, I used to think that CRM and academia, like the two shall not never meet, that you can't be someone in CRM and in academia. And that's just not true. Probably since I've been in CRM, I've met more academics in CRM, people who are still publishing amazing papers and doing amazing research. And yeah, that world is still really possible. It's just a different side, a different side of archaeology. And I have to say, so I work in Nevada. I get to see a lot of amazing Great Basin research, right? A lot of Paleo-Indian and archaic stuff, way more Paleo-Indian and archaic stuff than I would have ever seen in academia. You know, we're excavating archaic sites every single day. And that stuff essentially goes into gray literature most of the time and like disappears unless someone does something with it, which is really my goal with CRM is to take these, these like kind of gray literature reports that go off to a client or to BLM and actually put them into some kind of context so that people can see all the amazing things that we're finding in CRM. So yeah, the two can coexist in some kind of positive way if you if you want it to happen. And you know, I know lots of people now that I'm in CRM who have left academia because they can't handle the mental toll it takes, the expectations that are put on to you when you're in academia, things like that. So yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of people who think they'll never leave academia and I see a lot of them in CRM now. So the pandemic has really changed a lot, I think, for all, many academics and rethinking mental health and rethinking um, what they want to do with their lives. So, yeah. Do you find it very difficult to to work in a normal like eight to five job and then also write papers on the side? Or is that myself? I, I don't publish or anything. Like that. I don't do a ton of research, but if I was going to do it, I think it would be difficult after working all day to then take that extra time and be like, I need to work on this paper or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it is hard, but let me tell you in academia, when you're teaching, it's also, you have an eight to five job. I mean, when I'm teaching, you know, my job is to teach classes and meet with students and prepare materials and like the amount of time that you often have, within academia to actually just sit down and write papers. I mean, this is something I got to do when I worked at Max Planck and it was just like my time was my own and I did what I wanted and had a purely research-based job, right? But within academia, within the university system, we don't have like a bunch of free time to be writing papers. Um, so you have to pick and choose your time. And, you know, a lot of people are writing papers on weekends and the evenings after their kids go to bed on holiday, you know, that's when a lot of papers are getting written. So it's not too different from that. The, the trade-off is in academia, often your life, 
your work never shuts off, right? It's just an open flow. You're answering emails at 10 o'clock at night and like constantly doing stuff related to academia. Whereas in CRM, largely my job is, yeah, nine to five. And then I don't worry too much about what's going on in CRM on, on the weekends or at night. So yeah, you got to pick your battles, right? So maybe there's trades, pluses and minuses on each side. But yeah, this time in my life, I'm really loving the kind of freedom mentally and within my life that CRM offers. And you can still be in research. Yeah, still still do what you like. I'm still publishing papers and yeah, still part of my research groups and collaborations and all of that. I think it was like early 20, like er, during the, like right at the start of the pandemic, you and I had that like live on Instagram. And I think we chatted for like four hours just on zoom or whatever but yeah like at the like mental health wise I was like I think I want to get my PhD still I don't know but I like, really like my job and everyone was like you know like if you really want to do it just like go do it but I had this conversation with you and you were like <laughs> if you like your job stay there and like the rest of the world was on fire and I was like that was really good advice yeah yeah, yeah. you know I struggle because I think a lot of academia is geared towards you can't help it part of our job when you're at a university and I'm a visiting assistant professor at UNLV. What does that mean? It means I teach classes like one class a term. Yeah. And so I'm not tenured. I'm not part of the permanent faculty. I teach classes here and there. And so part of your job as you know, a faculty member is to encourage students to like go into the grad program. Right. And that's part of the university system is that we need grad students. Like that's how our departments thrive. But The trade-off to that is also that not everyone should go to grad school. Grad school is expensive, both money and mental and time-wise. It's a lot of work and you have to really love it and really want it and also understand the job market that you're walking into. If you think you're going to start grad school and you're guaranteed a professorship and you're going to go off and work at your dream school and be, you know, a lecturer, assistant professor or something like that's unlikely to happen given the statistics of how many jobs we have and how many people are coming out of PhD. And no one wants to say that. And it's it's uncomfortable. And I know that grad students hate hearing that when I tell them it's lost me, I think a number of jobs because I just, I can't help but be honest about the, the life that we're walking into as people who are in grad school. And I encourage people who really want that life and who are willing to like go through the hurdles that it, it is probably going to entail and have the lifestyle that can make that successful and are really encouraged to like go into academia later. But also I have lots of great students who are doing their masters or who do a PhD and end up in CRM and like, that's where they want to be. And that's like where they choose to end up. And CRM is a viable, realistic option, right? I, most of my friends who are in CRM or working for the BLM or the forest service or the park service are making more money, have more freedom, more time, more enjoyment than my colleagues who are in academia. And I think that this idea that we often get in academia, which is like CRM is where, where archeologists go when they can't hack it in academia is like very unhealthy and not true at all. Like all everyone I know in CRM are amazing researchers in their own right are like know the area that they work in, like, like the back of their hand, like could write a lot of people in academia under the table 
like I said, are making way more money than most of my friends in academia are much happier and in like better mental spaces than my friends in academia. So yeah, I feel lucky to have a foot in like both worlds and to see clearly the pluses and minuses of both worlds. And I, if anything, one of my roles, I hope in the future is to like encourage students if they want to go on to like a master's or something like that, that like, yeah, CRM is a totally viable option and like a great option. And it's not the default. There is, that was really well said, by the way. There's Uh, my spiel. (laughs) I've gone on on my long spiel. Yeah. No, I, I, when did we live together, Connor? 2015, 2016? Yeah. Uh, so we we're in our master's second year of it. And there's just a bit, <laughs> me and Connor just both holding pillows and just screaming into the pillows about like, what was it, stats or something? Yeah. But yeah, it's just like, there's times, like even in your master's, like where you're just like, this is so much to deal with. And like, everyone's like, oh, like who, that person's going to get funding or like, I, I'm not going to find a job after this. And like, then you're also like, I'm poor. So yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I appreciate you being honest about it. It's hard. It's hard financially and mentally and emotionally. You know, I've watched so many of my friends go like through mental and emotional ups and downs through their PhD and this, the toll it can take on your family and your friends and your personal life and your mental health and all that is difficult. Yeah. Also in the masters, it's really difficult and it's not for everyone. And if it's not for you, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. And more means there's probably something wrong with the system (laughs) Um, and academia. So yeah. Yeah. And I just don't think, yeah, not everyone needs to go to grad school. So when people like you are like, Oh, should I do my PhD? I'm like, really think about it. Like really, you got to really want that life. And you have to really want the debt, mental debt, financial debt, whatever it is that goes along with sinking that much time and energy into a PhD. It's a lot of work and you have to have a real, I probably said this to you, like a real path, a real idea of where you want to go after the PhD. And it can't just be like, well, I'm going to get an assistant professorship because that can't be, that can't be the the one and only plan. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I know lots of people with PhDs who are super successful in, yeah, the CRM system or the government system or things like that. So that can also be your plan. I, I think the the most, like, I guess not hard hitting, but I like, think I remember the most, but what you told me was like, if, you're, if you think about it practically, you have to go take a job wherever you can get it. And like, if you want to study Southeastern archaeology, you want to live in Nashville, you want to live in, you know, Seattle, wherever you want you're rarely going to get a job in that spot. So like you're going to end up in, you know, Kansas and like you have to want to live there um, or you're going to hate it. And I was like, yeah, man, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, think about the people that you know who have um, academic jobs, like were they from that university or did they have close connections to people at that university or did they work with people at that university or, I mean, that's the way it works. Let's take it from me. Don't go and do your PhD in the UK if you think you want to come back to the US, right? Because People are like, you're a European archaeologist. Like, we're not going to hire you in Arizona or Tennessee or, you know, do you do local archaeology? Is that part of like your repertoire? So it it usually ends up that people work and get a job if they do get a job at places that they have been working with those people in the local archaeology and have a really deep history with that work. And rightly so. But that's why I told you, you know, if you want to end up in the South, you better go to the South somewhere for your PhD. Or if you want to end up in, you know, the 
Intermountain West, then you better go to Reno or something like that for your PhD because that's your best chance of getting a job in that area. Yeah. Well, have no, I sufficiently like, <laughs> crushed the any dreams? But also, as, if you want to do a PhD, go and do a PhD. As as a person who is currently contemplating what the next step step of my life is, <laughs> I, I needed to hear that. So so thank you. Yes. Yeah, and it's not to like disparage a PhD, right? Or people who are doing their PhDs or masters right now, because those people have chosen that path and like have an idea usually of what they want to do. And I did it. And lots of people I know did it. So yeah, you just have to decide what's right for you. Yeah. And like, we only got a few minutes left now. So if you had, I mean, I guess you, you've said it now, but like, you know, anything research wise or, you know, life wise or just, you know, archaeology wise, you would like to tell the world or like, you know, something about dogs, something about, you know, just let you just be you. <laughs> I feel like I've said, I feel like I've really been me. I feel like I, I really I, put it out there. Some people are going to listen to this and be like, what the? Yeah. Yeah. We could just leave um, it at that if you want. Yeah. But. Yeah. I feel like if anyone takes anything from this, I hope they take kind of the real like side of archaeology that people don't really talk about all the time. The health, the mental health struggles, the challenges of the, the whole thing of grad school of collaborations of doing this thing that we call archaeology and putting it out there into the world yeah it's not you know we often get i'm sure all you guys get it as well like oh you're an archaeologist it's like indian jones every day you're on treasure hunts and you know it must just <laughs> be fun 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 are you finding gold are you finding dinosaurs is it awesome you know yeah. and like there's a lot of challenges to what we do um, no matter what path you take, there's challenges to it. And um, so, yeah, I hope people who are listening who aren't archaeologists are thinking like, wow, actually, it's like the same struggle I have working like a nine to five job in an office or, you know, working at Pizza Hut or whatever. We have like we got struggles in archaeology, too. We're not just living it up with our bullwhip. Yeah. <laughs> in one second or so. What would be your like opinion on like dogs relative to humanity? If you, if you want to answer that. Oh, I've always wanted to ask. Oh, I just love this quote. That's like, be the person your dog thinks you are, you know, like that's just what I live by. You know, your dog just thinks you're the best person in the world. And most of us aren't, we're mostly just like not. And so I just try (laughs) to like be the person my dog thinks I am every day. You know, when your dog just looks at you, like, Oh my God, I love you so much. You're so perfect. You're just like, I need to live up to my dog's standards, you know? That's That's really good. Awesome. Before we end the show, do you have any couple sources that you would recommend for anyone interested in dog domestication or not getting into academia or whatnot? Yeah, I mean, actually, I think YouTube has so many good ones. I love Ed Yong from The Atlantic does like a lot of great stories on our research. And The Atlantic has a lot of great little clips on YouTube about dog domestication based on our stories. There's also a new book out by Jennifer Raff, um, University of Kansas, called The Origins, like Genetic History of the Americas. I'm not plugging that because it talks about our dog research, but yeah, it's a good book to talk about kind of origins in the Americas. Another collaborator of mine, Clive Wynn, has a book out called Dog is Love. And he's a 
canine cognition specialist who works a lot with us on archaeology and genetics. And, you know, it doesn't all have to be like serious academic stuff. Like I love all of the like, why does your dog love you books? And, you know, everything related to like dog cognition and all of that a dog's history of the world is another like really good book about kind of the history of the world through the eyes of dogs like how how they were transported by us all around the world and stuff like that and like i have to say like go back to the original like white fang and call of the wild like just <laughs> go back to some like good jack london get yourself like deep into that dog narrative yeah Awesome. And where can our listeners like find you either on social media? I think you're just private, but like, or you can't find me. (laughs) (laughs) You can't find me. There's no finding me. I'm like, so sadly not integrated into a lot of that stuff. I I have a Twitter account. I never post on it. So you can't find me. You can't find me. a research gate or like a, I have a research gate and academia.edu. Yeah. You can find me there. Cool. We'll, we'll, put, we'll put a link to that in, uh, in the show notes. And because this is a Life in Ruins podcast, we have to ask you a very, very important question. So if you were given the chance again, would you still choose to live a life in ruins? Yes, of course. What else would I do? <laughs> awesome. We just interviewed Dr. Angela Perry. You can find her here. We'll put it in the show notes. And guys, please be sure to rate and review the podcast, uh, provide feedback, whatever that, you know, every, every episode I yell at you guys to do this, just do it. This was a great episode. I think you, you know, just head on over, be like, this was a great episode. Hit the, you know, the star button. All you got to do. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Did you hear about the candle that quit his job? I, I didn't. He burned out. Oh, I mean, it sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Love it. That's not that bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess we're out. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.